Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. It's time for Cover 2 Broncos. Just a couple dudes breaking down scheme, film, and the numbers. Now, your hosts, Joe Rowles and Jeff Essery. Thanks for listening to Cover 2 Broncos. I'm Jeff Esri. And I'm Joe Rowles. A quick reminder that if you have any questions, be sure to hit us up at Joro underscore NFL, at Jeffrey Esri, or at Cover 2 Broncos on Twitter. We'll be happy to answer them. So uh, how are we feeling about free agency, Jeff? Yeah, man, a lot has happened since we recorded our last podcast. We were just talking that before we jumped on line here that – you know, we the last one we talked about the trade for AJ Boyer, and since then a lot of stuff has happened in the football world. A lot of stuff has happened outside of the football world as well. Um, and so I have just to put it out there in case anybody's wondering, I've a very poorly timed sinus infection slash whatever congestion. So that's what this is. I'm fine, um, but staying inside just like everyone else, and obviously. You know, wishing everyone the the best as we kind of go through this time as a nation. But also, it's um, good to have a reprieve of football as well and something to talk about. And like you said, you know, a lot's happened. And I can't tell you how happy I am that the NFL proceeded to keep free agency. It's made it a having a welcome distraction has really made the last few days a lot better. Absolutely. I know. I know. For a minute there, Broncos country was kind of going crazy because. Denver seemed to be the second team on a lot of deals that happened for other people. Are there any deals that you were really kind of hoping that Denver would have got in on? Yeah, so I initially, and we'll get to obviously the trade for Jarrell Casey, but I was initially a little sad that Denver missed out on DJ Reader. He, he was one of the guys, top free agents that I was pushing for for Denver to sign, and you know, obviously they were one of the kind of top teams there competing for his services. So I was a little bit sad that they missed out on him. Uh, but the compensation, I thought, was – it was landed around what I thought he would get, around $13 million. Um, and I was okay paying that. But, you know, obviously it was a little bit too rich for Denver. I think the word was that they were trying to pay him around $12 million-ish. Um, so I'm, I was a little sad that they missed out on Reader. But from, you know, that price, it was, you know, top shelf. And so I can – I get that from the Broncos' perspective. The other kind of bargains that I thought that – I don't know that Denver necessarily missed out on, but it was kind of at positions that they were looking at. Uh, I thought Kendall Fuller going to Washington was a bargain for, I think it was around $10 million per year average. 
and he's a good player and he's only he's in his 20s let me make sure mm-hmm. i get it right um he's 25 and he got a four-year deal worth 40 million and so i really like that deal for washington um it was interesting to see the chiefs let him walk obviously they you know tagged chris jones and they've are pretty tight on cap space so but i thought he would have been a good fit for Denver and as a good player, at, especially at that age, it was, a, it was a really good deal given some of the rest of the corner market. I would have paid for B.J. Finney, you know, with, given his connection with Mike Munchak. He got a really nice deal. I mean, obviously he hasn't started a ton, but um, I thought the price for him was very reasonable. And then I know a lot of people have talked about the Byron Jones deal as being kind of the top of the market, and it has so far been the biggest deal so far. But looking at the structure of it, I don't hate the deal at all. I thought it was pretty good. His first year cap hit is right around 14 million, I think, and then it goes to 17 over the next couple years, and they have an out in three years um, with only six million dead cap. And so, you know, 17 million in 21 and in 2022 probably isn't even that high after the new CBA and things like that. And prices potentially get inflated. And so for just a 14 million cap hit in this year, I thought it was a pretty good deal for the best corner out there on the market paying market uh, prices. Yeah, I agree. And you got to think too, like going to Miami, he's going to end up playing something similar to what Gilmore plays. And I think that fits Byron Jones skill set just about perfectly. That was a really good deal for them. I'm thankful he went there because I'm I'm happy he's going away from the AFC West. I I didn't really want to have to face him, so that's good. Uh, I agree with you on Finney as well. I'm actually really surprised that Denver didn't get in on that deal because he didn't sign for much. And to me, that's kind of a sign that the the rumors that we've heard that Mike Munchak likes Patrick Morris. I think there's something to that. I think either the Broncos really like Patrick Morris, or they feel really comfortable with Elijah Wilkinson right guard because. Grabbing Glasgow gives them that flexibility, and again, we'll get to that in a second. But I'm just I'm surprised at, at that price. Finney Finney makes a ton of sense. So uh, the other two big deals that kind of surprised me, and again, this is it's easy to say now, but I can't believe no one outbid the Arizona Cardinals for DeAndre Hopkins. And maybe it was just one of those things where Bill O'Brien just gave him away to the oh first person gosh, that called, yeah. but. <laughs> But uh, Benjamin Albright and Ryan Edwards are saying that at the Combine, there was rumors pulling around there that they were looking to do that. And it's just it's wild to me. Bill O'Brien's basically looking like a new Josh McDaniels. So, Yeah, and I tweeted this a, out. I tweeted this out when the deal happened that, you know, teams just never learn, it seems, that when you give your head coach full personnel control, I don't think we've seen it work out yet. It, it literally never works outside of Bill Belichick. Um, I mean, I think the closest potentially is Kyle Shanahan doing what he does in San Francisco, but John Lynch is still a really strong presence there, and they actually have a, you know, standing GM in John Lynch. And so Houston kind of going without a GM and letting O'Brien do his thing is just – it's been a disaster, and I hate it for the Texans players that I really like. I love Deshaun Watson. I really like J.J. Watt. And it's a shame that now you've got players essentially jumping ship or getting run off by – a coach slash personnel guy like that. But yeah, I mean, if there was chance for people to get in on that, I would have, I would have loved for Denver to get in on that deal. It was a great deal in terms of the trade. And then obviously he wants a new contract, but you know, I mean, Denver probably could have made it work from a cap pace space perspective. If it was true that they were also interested in Amari Cooper, because what Hopkins wants is right around what Amari Cooper got. And so it's not an unreasonable ask. I think he wanted a raise of like four or five, extra million on his base salaries because he's making like 12 to 14 over the next couple of years. And so, yeah, big time deal for the Cardinals. And that'll be really interesting to see Kyler Murray, you know, getting some weapons with him and what Cliff Kingsbury can do in a second year with him and adding that weapon. So I thought it made sense. So one deal I really hated just because I didn't like where it happened. I really didn't like that. The Raiders got Kwiatkowski. I, I don't think he – I think he's like a slight upgrade from Todd Davis. I'm not saying he's a world beater. But you look at the deal that they signed him for, it was a really reasonable deal. Not only that, but it also is flexible and that if it doesn't work out, they can get out of it pretty easily. So the first the first two deals that Mike Mayock made for the Raiders in free agency with, uh, with Krakowski and then Corey Littleton, both of them were pretty smart. And the fact is, 
signing both those players, Las Vegas doesn't need to rush and overdraft a linebacker now. So that's kind of bad for Denver. But I did like the deal. I thought it was a smart deal. But yeah, I, and, I just wish it wasn't the Raiders. Yeah, and even them bringing in Carl Nassib, I thought, wasn't terrible either. I mean, it's eight. I think you got about $8 million ish per year for a you know edge rusher who could potentially develop. And so, yeah, I agree seeing Mike Mayock um, – and what he's been doing over there in, oh, I almost wanted to say Oakland, but in Las Vegas now. I'm a huge fan of Mayock just as a guy, and um, I liked his coverage when he was with the NFL Network, so I was really sad to see him go to the Raiders because I don't want to root against him, but he looks like he's doing a good job so far as the GM. And, yeah, I mean, I would have made that move for um, Kwiatkowski. I think it just came in a little – just a – hair over what Todd Davis is making. I think his average yep. ends up being about $7 million per year. Todd Davis is at like five. And so, I mean, if you're going to pay Davis, you might as well up at $2 million and get a younger guy. Um, I think he's a little bit younger than, than Davis, but, you know, a guy who's a little bit more athletic. And um, Yeah, so I agree there. Are there any deals you're glad that Denver didn't get in on? I think we talk about the the flip side of the Hopkins trade. That was, you know, I'm glad they didn't get fleeced for anything like the Texans did. Um, but if you look across at the other big deal that happened was the Diggs trade. Um, and it, it was interesting because there was a lot of word that, you know, maybe Denver could potentially be in on Diggs, the connection to Pat Shermer, and the at least the understanding, like, I mean, f- even from – what I thought, I didn't think he would command a first round pick. Um, I mean, I think at most we were thinking a second round pick, maybe third or fourth. And I would have happily given a second for him, but a first and I forget all the other stuff that they gave up, but it was a lot. And so I'm glad Denver didn't go in on that, even though I like Diggs as a player. Um, I'm glad they didn't pay the, the really high price uh, for Diggs. And then on the corner market, I thought it was interesting I mentioned Kendall Fuller as one that Denver potentially missed out on, but the other corners that signed, you know, Byron Jones obviously was decently expensive. He ended up coming around the $17 million a year mark. But then the deal James Bradbury got and Trey Waynes got, I thought was ridiculous. Um, both of those guys, I mean, they're not terrible. Trey Waynes, you could argue, is has not been very good. Bradbury's not terrible. But each of those guys are making like 14 ish million per year. And so you look at the contrast of Denver getting a guy like A.J. Boye locked in on about a $13 million a year deal for the next two years. And to me, that looks so much better than, you know, what was out there on the market and the market prices right now. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm really glad that Denver didn't get in on Joe Schobert. I'm really glad that Denver didn't get in on – Jack Conklin, obviously, and, and I don't think they were going to ever get in on Jack Conklin, but I definitely did see some people try and float that. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of Schobert anyway, and seeing what he made, he, he is essentially a two-year, $22 million deal. After that, they can get out of it, but you're paying $11 million a year for a guy who can't really defend the run. So Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot, and – Linebackers, the way linebacker works, I do think that having a coverage linebacker is really important. If you have a guy that's worth that, you pay him. I don't think Schobert's so good that it makes up for the fact that he's so bad against the run, at least in what I've seen of him. And again, I haven't studied his 2019 as closely as I did his 2018, but his 2018 supposedly, from what I've heard, is better. And I I would not have paid him that much. Uh, I'm ag- I agree with you on Wayne's. And I do, I do think there's a chance that Bradbury does play well because I think he's getting out of the NFC South. But the problem with the, the the Giants getting him is they now have two slow corners. So depending on what they do in the secondary, they could have a lot of trouble with teams with a lot of speed. Uh, DeAndre Baker is not very good in terms of like speed. Last year he got Ryan by a lot. I don't like Jordan Phillips. I thought Arizona was really dumb to make that deal. And granted, again, he had 10 sacks last year and everybody gets all – you know, hot and bothered over 10 sacks from a defensive tackle, but he didn't get a lot of pressure. I watched his tape. I actually wrote his roster review for Mile High Report. I didn't see much. He got home a lot against bad teams, but outside of that, he wasn't really impressive. Uh, one of the big reasons I love the Graham Glasgow signing so much is the fact that you look at what some of these other linemen were making. Denver got essentially the top inside out 
inside offensive lineman on the market, and they got him for slightly more than people paid for Eric Flowers. Eric Flowers was good last year and really bad outside of that. I I can't believe Miami paid that much for him. Um, and that's that's one of the reasons I was advocating over the last couple of days that Denver should pick up the fifth-year option for Bulls because if people are paying George Fant, Denver's going to be able to move Garrett Bulls next year. Like, even if he's bad, like, even if he's not – as long as he's not completely hopeless this year, they'd be able to trade him next year. So yeah. I, I, am on, I am on board with that now. Yeah, I agree. And what's the deadline again for that, Joe? I forget. It's, it's in May. It's right after the draft. Yeah. I'd have to look. But it, I know it is right after the draft. I, I like the idea of keeping – kind of keeping the heat on Bulls to, like, put in the work right now. I, I get that, and I hope that's what Elway's doing. And it also gives Denver the flexibility that if a tackle falls to them, they could, they could figure out what they're doing. But I look at Bulls now at this point. He's a movable asset. If, if you pick up his fifth-year option and he plays up to it, you have him for another year at a bargain relative to what the market's going to pay him because you look at Conklin. Tennessee Titans didn't pick up Conklin's fifth-year option, and then they lost him because he played okay. And you play okay the way tackles are. There's just not enough of them. Someone's going to throw big money at average tackles. That's just what happens. Yep. If Garrett Bulls does make a jump under Munchak this year, he's going to outplay that market. And if he doesn't, you can still trade him to somebody who's desperate. Yeah, to me, there's not a lot of downside to the fifth-year option, obviously, unless he gets hurt since it's guaranteed for injury. But um, mm-hmm. I agree, and I think, you know, they didn't do it on some of the other guys, um, you know, Bradley Roby and, and stuff like that. But I do think tackle is a hotter market in terms of desperation. You can get something out of Garrett Bowles if you wanted to just fifth-year option and trade him if you don't like how he plays next year. So I totally agree. I think they, I think they should make that move. So moving from Bowles, since we're kind of talking about the offensive line, how do you feel about the Graham Glasgow deal? I thought it was a good move. Um, I think, you know, obviously you go into free agency and Denver has for a long time, you know, wanted to try to shore up holes in free agency so they can go best player available in the draft. Um and not be pigeonholed into a particular position, even though, you know, every team has kind of positions that they are a little bit more high on. But the biggest, you know, gaping holes on the team were interior defensive line and interior offensive line. And so I thought making the move to for Graham Glasgow was a great uh, pickup for Denver, especially when Tooney goes off the market. Glasgow is kind of the next guy there from a guard perspective. And he brings a lot of versatility. And so to your point earlier about Denver liking Morris, and then they also have Elijah Wilkinson, you really have three guys that could potentially play two spots. And so even if they don't draft a guy, one, it leaves them open to, to be able to draft a guy if they want to, a guard or a center, whoever falls to them and slot them in wherever. But then even if you don't draft a guy, you can just let those three guys kind of battle it out in camp, especially in the early going and see which one kind of sticks at which spot and play it out from there. And so there's no harm with Elijah Wilkinson sliding into that kind of sixth O-lineman spot if Glasgow stays at guard and Patrick Morris ends up becoming a center or Denver drafts a center, or you could have Glasgow flip over to center and Elijah Wilkinson stays at guard. And either way, I think you've made your interior offensive line better. And I was impressed by Glasgow on the tape. I know you watched a lot of tape of him um, over the last couple days as well, Joe. But I really liked what I saw. Um, I think he's got really long arms for the position. I think it's like 33-ish inch arms. He's got kind of tackle length arms. And you can see that he uses his arms well. He uses his hands really well in pass protection. Um, he's not a he's not a super strong guy. Like He's not going to blow guys off the ball, particularly at guard. Um the guard position, but I thought he did a really good job, especially working against some three techs and um, some really good pass rushers. I was really impressed with his game against Fletcher Cox. Uh, he had a good game against Chris Jones um, when he played the Chiefs and the Eagles. And so, yeah, I think it was a really solid move for Denver. It was a good deal from my perspective. Um, that's kind of the going rate for about that tier of guard. And so I'm glad they addressed the offensive line and thought it was a solid move. I did too. And and I wrote about it for Gift Horror, so I'm. But I love it. I, I honestly I didn't think that they were going to go after Glasgow. I thought if they were going to do anything, they were going to resign McGovern, or they were just going to go cheap on the interior altogether. So it kind of surprised me that they did it. But after they did it, I looked into his game. He's such a good pass blocker, and I I don't really care about the PFF grade. 
I, I know somebody somebody kind of threw that at me earlier today. I watched the tape and he holds up in pass protection in a way that he doesn't get beat for sacks and he tends to never give someone a clean shot at a quarterback. So his his anchor is solid. So he will get pushed around a little bit against like a Fletcher Cox. He'll give up a little bit of ground, but he keeps his hands on in front of somebody and he has the kind of footwork that he's not going to get beat clean. Yeah, I was and, really impressed with his feet. Yeah, and the way and and the way I mean if if Kansas City's keeping Chris Jones, having a guard that can do that is going to be worth its weight in gold because Chris Jones is really good. And the thing is, uh Spagnuolo likes to use stunts where he'll have either Frank, Frank Clark uh come inside and Chris Jones crash outside. Well, one of the things that Glasgow is really really good at is he keeps his head on a swivel in a way that like he doesn't get surprised by yeah. those kind of moves. Yeah. It showed up all over his tape. I watched I think I watched 7 games. And I think four of them I watched really closely, but I watched seven games before I actually wrote the post. And he just doesn't lose on those. He, he's quick enough that he can catch up to a stunt in a way that he'll be able to pick it up. So as long as the center next to him, or if, if he's guard, or as long as his guard next to him is not completely useless, he's going to look really good. And he made Frank Ragnow look better than he really was last year for the Lions. And so I think if Denver does roll out Patrick Morris as the center, Having Glasgow on one side and Dalton Reisner on the other is a really good way for Patrick Morris to kind of get his feet wet. And speaking of Patrick Morris, I do kind of expect him to take over as a center unless they draft somebody. Just because, again, I've heard I've heard before that Munchak's high on him. He's young, so again, he's unproven mostly. But you look at the tools he has, and he did show up in the games that we did like we did go over. I have to go back and really study him, but he doesn't jump out at you in a bad way. But you look at his tools, uh, I'm looking at mock draftable, and he's in the 96th percentile for bench, he's in the 94th percentile for 20-yard shuttle, 88th percentile for three-cone, 99 for broad jump, 98 for vertical jump. Like, he's an athlete. He's a heck of an athlete for a center. And yes, he's small, but most centers tend to be kind of small. Like, that's just a thing. So I'm not especially worried about it, and I think with Munchak coaching him, there's a reason to believe that he could be good. So I'm not saying that we know it, but I'm not too worried about it, especially if the rest of the line is kind of settled around him. Yeah, I agree. And um, I watched every snap that he played. I mean, it wasn't a lot, but that he played last year. And I came away impressed. I mean, I kept hearing people talk about Patrick Morris. And, I mean, he's buried on the roster. And I'm like, who is this guy? I had never seen any of his stuff before. So I went back and watched the tape um, for when he did come in. I think it was the Lions game that he played a good um, Lions share of the snap. There you go. Um he played a good chunk of the snaps, and um, I was really impressed. And I don't think the size – I mean, his hand, his arm length uh, potentially could get him a little bit, but, again, he's a center. Um, but he's pretty compact, and he kind of uncoils a little bit on guys. And so I don't think the size is really a big issue from what I saw. And I thought he was, you know, a solid dude. And so I think – I like the idea of Glasgow staying at guard so that uh, Morris can come in at center because I like that better than I think Elijah Wilkinson at guard, mainly because, and you touched on it, Joe, Glasgow's ability to almost work on an island a little bit at, at right guard. And so if you think about it, what some teams are trying to do, you know, a lot of times with those guards is, you know, widen the tackle out. So they've got the edge rusher taking a really yep. wide um, loop and so your right tackle's gone and so the guards really you know you can you can give more help to the tackles in terms of chipping with the back and tight end and stuff but when they're bring when they you know pull around to the outside with the edge rusher the tackle follows him and the guards kind of one-on-one -on -one against a guy like Chris Jones depending on which direction you know the center um, goes and how the protection is set but the defense can dictate a lot of that and so Glasgow's ability, at least from what I saw and what um, you've seen on tape as well, to uh, work a bit on an island there at right guard and hold up really well. And also, to your point, I, it stuck out to me too, his picking up stunts, picking up blitzes. He seems like a very savvy player, keeps his head on a swivel and looks for work. And so I think he's better utilized at guard as well as opposed to just at center. Um, and, so, and he uses yeah. his arms really well. He's always got his arms out. He's feeling feeling for the rush, feeling for work, feeling where his guys are at. And he uses his long arms really well. Um, and I said this before, I mean, but he moves really well. I was really impressed with his feet. And I think his hands, once he gets his hands on a pass rusher, 
you mentioned it. He get he can get driven back a little bit, but he resets and anchors really well. Having Glasgow at right guard would open up the ability to run the things that, and we've talked about it a lot, and I wrote about it a little bit, but like the HB base type play where essentially Dalton Reisner pulls out and then leads across the formation. Glasgow does that for the Lions uh, a couple different times on basically every game I watched, and he would open up the ability to run counter. He'd run up the ability to run those like pulling plays. So Denver, all of a sudden, their, their running game can go in either direction, and I think that that would make it better. That, that makes your running game stronger because you can't predict where they're going to go. Yeah, he, he looked really athletic coming out on pools. And I tweeted the other day, and I sent it to you as well, because one of my favorite plays that Denver ran last year is that counter OF. Mm-hmm. Um, and the F stands for the, the fullback. And then um, the Lions ran the version of the counter OH, essentially, where the, you've got the H back. And so Denver, you know, now with trading Janovich, would probably be looking to run more of that. But that was one of my favorite plays that Denver ran, and Philip Lindsay got some of his best big runs on that play, mainly to Dalton Reisner pulling. So Dalton Reisner, you know, pulls around to the left, and he kicks out the end. Everybody else washes down, and then you've essentially got your fullback uh, leading the way up the hole for Philip Lindsay. And so you flip it the other way, and you've got Glasgow pulling, and you've got your H-back coming off, you know, essentially right off the right tackle, and... Glasgow kicks out, the H-back follows the running back up. And so it's a, you know, to me is a really effective play. It utilizes Philip Lindsay's skill set well. And so the ability to run that to either side, to your point, Joe, I think is really cool for the running game. It gets me excited. How do you feel about Jeff Driscoll? Yeah, I mean, I think you've watched more of him than I have. I, I intentionally haven't really looked into him a lot. I'll be candid. Um I thought he was fine. I mean, I watched some of his games last year. Uh, I was a little surprised to see Denver get a guy that was this young, especially when you have Drew Locke. And so you you think they would – at least I thought they would go after more of a veteran guy. And I mean, Driscoll's been in the league a little bit, but I thought they'd go after more of kind of the veteran mentor type guy. Um, obviously, didn't think they'd keep Joe Flacco around, but maybe bring in um, somebody that – you know, could potentially add some experience to that QB room. But, I mean, obviously he's athletic. I think he, you know, he's very limited as a passer and especially from a, um, like, mental awareness standpoint, um, doesn't throw a lot of anticipation and stuff. So, you know, it, it was what it was. I don't think it was an exorbitant amount of money and Denver needed a backup quarterback. And so yeah, I'm kind of meh on the on the deal. But I think you've watched more of them than I have. Well, I, I was pretty – so I, I went into this whole – because I knew QB2 was going to be a thing, and I was kind of curious to see what Denver did just because I thought that it would make sense to grab a veteran just from the sake of you, – you hear a lot of the quarterbacks in the NFL talk about how important it was to have a veteran in the room when they were learning. And so I was kind of curious and surprised that they didn't do that, and I'm kind of bummed about that. I was pretty – I'm kind of eh about the money because it's not that much. It really isn't that much. And, and Jeff Driscoll does represent an upgrade over Brandon Allen. But I, I agree with you. I, I watched two of his games last night. I watched the Washington game and I watched the Bears game. And his mobility makes sense. It definitely stands out to you on film. He makes a lot of plays after things start to break down. He definitely has the mobility that if he has to come in, they'll be able to run a lot of zone read and stuff like that to try and weaponize his mobility. As a passer, the passing game is going to become very elementary if he has to come into the game because he basically locks onto his primary read. He stares everybody down. He's late on his throws. His motion is kind of slow. He doesn't really throw with much anticipation. So, I mean, maybe he improves with time because, like, Pat Shermer has fixed quarterbacks before. I mean, he made Case Keenum look like a viable quarterback. So there, there's definitely tools to work with, and maybe that's why Denver did it. But – if he comes in, I'm I'm not going to have high hopes. It's just going to be I hope the rest of the team does enough to carry him because his passing game, basically in the short game, he's good. If if he has to throw long, it's going to be really he's shotgunning stuff like stuff. Sometimes it'll get there, sometimes it goes all over the place. So I it, it makes sense. It doesn't really move the needle for me, but I mean it's one of those things where if let's say Drew Locke, and I know you and I both believe in him, but if Drew Locke suddenly tanks. They're back in the market for 2021, which, so I guess that's good, like on a you know best case, worst case scenario. So, 
Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I have with You don't have a veteran bridge that the organization feels like they can potentially use as a crutch. You you have to go back to the draft, so it forces them to do that. So yeah, I'm well, fine with it from well, that it, perspective. Well, it's like Carolina. Like Carolina is going to tank, but Carolina also signed Teddy Bridgewater, so they're not going to be good enough to actually tank into a quarterback. They're going to be like the sixth pick in the draft next year. So if Den- if Denver's suddenly bad, like if everything goes wrong this year. Denver could be bad enough to actually end up in that 2021 QB Derby. I'm not rooting for that, obviously. But I'm just saying, like, Driscoll's not that guy that's going to come. Like, if Drew Lock gets hurt in week one, or if he's just completely bombing out, Jeff Driscoll's not going to come in and make you good enough that you're out of the quarterback derby. So that I guess that's good. The big one today, and again, we're recording this on Wednesday, was Darrell Casey. How do you feel about that? I love the move. I'm a huge fan of love Jarrell Casey. Um, I've been kind of a fan of his just in Tennessee and kind of watched him from afar a little bit. And I I loved everything about it from not only the player, but I also just love the move that Denver made in terms of shoring up the interior defensive line. Um, It really offsets the DJ reader miss, you know, them being out on him. And then when you look at the salary that Denver was able to lock in with him, you know, DJ reader, got 13.2 uh, 13 and a quarter million and uh Casey's essentially locked in at 11ish 12ish million for the next couple years and he's a top flight he's like a five-time pro bowler and so I love what Denver just before even diving into Drell Casey and his tape and stuff but I just love what John Elway has done is it's almost hacking the free agent system a little bit um, in two ways. One, the comp picks, when you trade for a guy, you you cut that signing essentially out of the compensatory pick formula. So if Denver's losing a lot of guys like Wolf and Harris and Chris Harris as well, all of those guys count towards comp picks for you because you're not offsetting them with a signing that's going to um, – you know, count against the formula. So they potentially get some more compensatory picks, which, you know, that adds up. And then the other piece is as these free agent market prices go high, when we saw Denver essentially be in on those positions, they were in on the cornerback position. When looking at Byron Jones, it got too rich. So they traded, they were in on DJ reader. It got too rich. So they traded. So they set a cap. They said, we're only going to spend this much and looked for guys that they could trade for. And they traded peanuts essentially, especially for Jarrell Casey, a seventh round pick to lock a guy in at right now, it's already below market value. I mean, he's younger, he's older than DJ reader. And so I get that, but you get a top flight defensive tackle for less than, you know, a couple million less than DJ reader made. And so in even a year or two, both of the Boye and the Casey deals, they already look like bargains. They're going to look like absolute steals in a year or two, and you have them cost-controlled. And so I thought it was a great, savvy move by what Elway is doing. And they had kind of the extra little throwaway picks to use in the trades. They still have 10 draft picks, I think, still. So from that perspective, I absolutely loved just the move about it. And that's not even to say what I love about Jarrell Casey, but what did you think? I love it. I, I watched two of his games. I watched both. Uh, I watched the game against the Chiefs, and I've watched the game against the Ravens now. And I, I didn't watch them really closely, but I wanted to see kind of just how he was being used, kind of just where he shows up. And I love it. He He's versatile. He can play up and down the line. Uh, Tennessee used him standing up a ton, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but he's played the five technique. He's played out, he's played out wide, wide. Uh, he plays up in the nose. He can play the one. He can play the three. So he gives Fangio a lot of flexibility with what he does with the rest of the line. And he wins. He wins a lot. And he wins with speed, which is interesting. He, uh, he's he got really good hands. He's really mobile. And then he 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 still he does have shorter arms because he is only six foot one. But he stands up to double teams really well because he's so squatty. So there's a couple of plays I was watching the Ravens game where they tried to run a double at him. And he basically just eats the double. And because of it, the the zone read play that they were trying to give to, uh, I think it was to Mark Ingram, it just didn't go anywhere because Mark Ingram didn't have a gap. And Drell Casey does that. And again, those kind of plays don't necessarily show up in the box score. People don't think they're exciting. But that's how you win in the running game. And yeah. Drell Casey can do that. Yeah, his ability to split double teams. I mean, to me, the stuff I saw on tape from him, he was splitting them a lot of the times. And so it's yeah. interesting – that, you know, when we've talked about it, I, I thought Denver would go maybe more for 
a guy that's a bit of a clogger, more stand-up, you know, he's going to stack and shed against some of those. But Casey's more, he wins more from penetration. And um, yep. like you said with his athleticism, he's impressive for a guy his size. I love his feet. He's super quick. Um, he, you know, when he lines up on the – sometimes on the edge or standing up or even when he's just playing um, lined up, you know, over the center at nose tackle – his ability to corner and, you know, penetrate in and then get back to the quarterback. Um, and that helps him in the running game too. I think like people try to wall him off. There was a couple where they were doing a kind of a pin pool technique and the center comes after him and he just kind of sidesteps him and almost clubs him along and just uses momentum against him and then resets immediately and fires off after the running back. And so, you know, he wins in different ways than just standing guys up. Um, and, you know, stuffing the run like a Mike Purcell or something like that. Um, his He's got a really well-developed arsenal of pass rush moves. And I think that's yeah, the biggest good. thing that Denver needed. And we've talked about this a little bit. You and Joe Mahoney from Mile High Report, you know, did a great breakdown on essentially the pressure share from Vaughn Miller. And once Bradley Chubb went down last year, I mean, I think it, it was painfully obvious that Vaughn Miller was the only one on – the defensive front that could bring any pressure against the quarterback. And obviously when you lose, you know, one of your best pass rushers like Bradley Chubb, you're going to struggle. But Denver's kind of had a hole from that um, defensive tackle, defensive, you know, interior defensive line position as a pass rusher really since Malik Jackson left. I mean, Derek Wolf has done a pretty good job, but he's just not the pass rusher that a guy like Jarrell Casey is. And Shelby Harris, you know, everybody hoped he would turn into, you know, something. And I thought he played well. But his he was not super disruptive, and so for the first time in a while, Denver has a disruptive, you know, game wrecker on the interior, and you pair him with Bradley Chubb and Von Miller, and my gosh, um, especially the things that Casey can do on stunts. Um, yeah. You know, Brandon Thorne's done a great job of calling out. You know, he's one of the best guys in on stunts, and he does them from everywhere. He'll do them from the edge. He starts at nose and will loop around. And that's the kind of stuff that Derek Wolf and Von Miller have really, you know, kind of made hay on since both of them came into the league. And so seeing Casey and Von Miller being able to do that together or Casey and Chubb do that together is gets me really excited. Um, and I think it gives Fangio a lot of flexibility. Well, and one of the cool things about it is Fangio, ideally, and we've <laughs> talked about this already a little bit. If Fangio can, he doesn't want to send more than four people. You win with stunts because what you do is you shake rushers free because it ends up causing havoc for the blocking scheme. And if you have a player who wins basically because he's so good on stunts, it really opens up what Fangio can do with Chubb, Von Miller, and Casey. And Drell Casey has had more than 20 pressures every single season since 2016. So the last four years, he's had 20 pressures or more, according to Sports Info Solutions. Uh, and for a defensive tackle, that's more important probably than the sack numbers. Honestly, yeah. in general, it's probably more important than the sack numbers. But, but for a defensive tackle, they're not going to get home as much just because they're rushing from the interior. But when they're getting pressure, they're still disrupting the pass. And Casey does that a lot. And not only does he get – he got I think he got 20 last year. DJ Reader, who was actually making $2 million more than him, I think, about $2 million more than him, about 14. Uh, Shelby Harris, even though Shelby Harris got sacks last year, he, I think, only has 17. So Casey did get more pressure than both of those guys last year. And Denver has him on a non-guaranteed contract after the season. So if he suddenly declines, they can get out from under it. All they did was they paid a seven-drop pick for him. So it was a great deal because you look at the market, the guys who are known for disrupting passers like uh, Jordan Phillips, Javon Hargrave, uh, and I guess you could argue Michael Brockers, all of them got bigger guarantees than what Denver is going to be locked in on Casey. So they both have a really good player, but they have him for a really, really team-friendly deal. Yeah, and the other thing, too, that – and, you know, again, I liked T.J. Reader, and I, you know, wanted Denver to get him, but – Oh, I did, too. Yeah, definitely. But but I think one of the downsides or, the, you know, one of the kind of silver linings is you look at Jarrell Casey's snap counts, too, and he's played over the last three years anywhere between 60 to 80% of the snaps. And, you know, you know, Vic Fangio likes to keep his defensive lineman in there and not rotate as much. At least he did in 2018 with Akeem Hicks, and you saw that with Derek Wolf and Shelby Harris. And so – um, DJ Reader, I think I don't think he had played over 60% of snaps in the last two seasons. Um, he was right around 57% over the last two. And so, you know, he's a big guy. He could potentially get worn down. And obviously, he's he's got some talent. But you're paying 13.5 million for, 
you know, a guy who hasn't played more than 60% of the snaps and Fangio may be asking him to play 70, 75%. And so Casey, I think is a better fit in that regard. And it also still gives Denver flexibility. I mean, Casey's played at nose tackle. I mean, I wouldn't put him, you know, you're not going to put him at nose tackle in base um, because Mike Purcell's going to be there, but it gives Denver flexibility of him potentially kicking inside and sub packages. You can move him around, like you said. And I think one of the things that, you know, and we'll talk about this as we dig into Fangio's defense once free agency and all the news kind of dies down, um, is Fangio potentially wanting to run some more tight fronts um, with the guys that he has. He did it last year with um, the Chicago Bears, especially on against a team, you know, who's going to want to spread it out a little bit more. And um, if you want to you know, learn a little bit more about tight fronts, uh, Cody Alexander has some great stuff. You can Google it. It's essentially... Um, I mean, people around the league do it all the time. It's not something you know, super unique, but I think you will see more teams begin to run it. It's it's um, a formation that's really good against more spread kind of attacks. And um, you have a nose tackle essentially lining head up on the center, so he's at the zero tech, and then you've got two ends that are down in what you know is the four eye technique, essentially like right on the inside shade of the. Um, offensive tackle and so you're right in the b gaps so you're clogging up the b gaps with your two defensive ends and then the nose tackles on the front and so Jarrell Casey played a lot of nose in those looks too for the Titans and, and what it does is it causes all kinds of issues from a zone um, zone read perspective but then also you know any zone running game as well because you're clogging up the b gaps and so we'll do a little bit more deeper dive on that and dig into it but um, I think Casey gives them flexibility to play some of those as well. How do you feel about Mike Purcell and Devontae Bosby coming back? I thought they were great moves. Um, I love Devontae Bosby. I was a little sad we didn't tender him, and so it was great to see Denver bring him back on, I think it was just a league minimum contract, uh, around 800 Um I thought he played really well. He'll be a good guy to challenge Isaac Yadam um, for kind of that third slash second cornerback spot. I think he'll probably play outside. And I think Bryce Callahan, you know, obviously if he stays healthy, will do a bit of the – uh, Bradley Roby, or excuse me, the Chris Harris role, and you know Yadam or Bosby will do the the Bradley Roby role, where you're the third cornerback and you come in on the outside in sub packages. So, you know, in base packages with two corners, you'll probably see Boye and Callahan on the outside, and then Callahan will kick into the slot when it goes to three corners. So you're playing less; you're more of just the third rotational guy, but you are playing on the outside. Um, but I thought Bosby looked really good in the you know limited time that he had. He fits Fangio's defense really well. Um, he was on air the other night with Benjamin Albright and Ryan Edwards. He seems like a really cool guy and, you know, was excited to come back to Denver. So I loved that move. And then Mike Purcell is is a great one that, you know, he was an awesome find last year from Denver. He's super cheap. Um, I'm glad they tendered him and brought him back. And so both of those guys are great, you know, solid, if, if nothing else, solid depth players or role players on the defenses, which is what you need. You need to find cheap role players who are potentially going to outplay their contracts. And both of those guys are, you know, prime candidates for that. I think this year. I agree. That's, that's one of those things I really liked about both moves. And that's honestly one of the things I really liked about always kind of strategy towards free agency in general, that you can tell you're looking for bargains and, and yeah, that can be frustrating when you see all these flashy players sign all these places, but a lot of these teams that are making these deals are going to regret it pretty quick. Like I liked Michael Pierce. Michael Pierce making $27 million over three years is pretty rich. Uh, he's a good nose tackle who offers a little bit of a pass rush, probably more pass rush than Mike Purcell does. But he's making a lot of money, and it's $18 million guaranteed. So like, there's a decent chance that that could be a deal that Minnesota regrets. So yeah, I, I liked what Denver did with those two. Yeah, and to your point on that, I mean, like I mentioned – you know, you want role players or guys that are going to outplay their contracts. And I think that's true across the board. Like that's how you win as a good football team is you have guys, you have guys play up to their contracts if they're on big ones and you have guys outplay their contracts if they're on small ones. And you can't do that. If you're constantly going to free agency, paying top dollar for guys, there's no room for them to even outplay their contract. And if they have any type of variance, which all players do, you know, on the down part of the year or the down year, potentially, they're not living up to their contract. And so, you know, you're really, you're paying them for their ceiling and they may not always hit their ceiling. And so I do like what Denver did in terms of, I don't think there was any guy that they really paid top, top dollar. I mean, Glasgow is probably the most because he, I think he got the most 
out of any interior offensive linemen so far. Um, at least on a free agent deal, obviously Tooney was tagged and stuff. But uh, other than that, I mean, there was no guy that they just you know went out and broke the bank for, even though they had a lot of cap, and so it gives a lot of room. But I but they addressed all their holes, I think. I mean, there's no major holes at this point. Um, they still need to bring some guys in, but. I think they've addressed all their major holes and they didn't overpay for anyone. So I don't know. It was a super successful free agent period. Me too. And it kind of set them up to, it set them up to go best player available in the draft. If that's what they want to do. I, I still kind of hope that they kick the tires on these free agent receivers. It's kind of interesting that other than Amari Cooper, most of the receivers are sitting on the market, which kind of reflects the fact that teams like this draft a lot. And I understand why, because I love this draft class a lot of receiver. <laughs> but I think if there's a if if one of the receivers are kind of like itching to get a deal done, I I kind of hope Elway jumps on it, just because if you can get a Paramin for a one year contract for like six seven million, I think that it, it would give you a little bit more wiggle room without having to worry about what happens in the draft. Uh, but I also kind of suspect that Denver's going to trade up and chase after Rugs, so. If Elway's dead set on doing that, I can understand why they wouldn't jump into the free agent market receiver too. So, uh, let's talk about Joe Flacco really quick because I've had—I can't tell you how many people have asked me when is Denver going to cut Joe Flacco. Yeah. So, so the, what do you the, think? The thing with Joe Flacco is he's got to be healthy before you cut him, or at least you know prove that he's healthy, and that's why Denver made the big deal. It was what a month ago or something. Mike Cliss was tweeting out about you know he's going to pass, he passed his physical or he's been cleared by the doctor to play football or whatever it is. I forget exactly how they worded it, but um, essentially, you know, pushing that he's healthy because he has to be healthy for them to be able to cut him for not for any of the guarantees not to kick in. So, I mean, Timber's not really in a hurry um, to cut him because it feels like they're pretty much done in the big spending in terms of free agency. Justin Simmons is tagged. They have time to work a deal with him if they want to during the offseason or, you know, during the continuing of the offseason. And so, they don't have any reason, even though you know they could do it pretty soon. I don't think they have any reason to cut him right away, um, and so that's kind of where I'm at with that one. Do you think he ends up being a June one cut, or do you think? And what does it mean if he is? Let's let's go over that really quick too, because I know there's going to be some questions about that. Yeah, so that's uh, inter- that's an interesting one. If they designate him as a you know, pre-June one cut, um, essentially what would happen would be what we've been talking about all along is. The thirteen point um, six million would hit Denver's books this year um, for Joe Flacco, and that's part of the eighteen point five that he was initially owed when they first signed him. And so, I've talked about this at length. Uh, it's pinned on my Twitter feed. Denver, when they signed Joe Flacco, committed essentially $18.5 million to him, and that was in 2019. They restructured his deal and kicked some of that into the next year just to give a little cap flexibility, but their entire overall cap burden, no matter how many years they spread it out across, is still going to always be 18.5. That's the only amount of money that they'll pay Joe Flacco or that he'll hit their books for. So at this point, it's just Denver kind of peanut buttering that 18.5 across the different years, however they want to. And, you know, you could argue that they don't need to kick it any further down the road and you should just rip the Band-Aid off. But, I mean, if they want to kick it down the road a little bit, assuming maybe that the cap is going to rise or they want flexibility or something like that, I'm fine with that. I mean, let's call it the Joe Flacco tax every year that they keep some of that money on the books and, you know, keep kicking it over. But the, I think the biggest point is, you know, Joe Flacco isn't leaving any dead money on Denver's, on Denver's cap from a, like from the restructure perspective that wasn't planned. It's not like Denver went out and, um, you know, did something crazy and gave him a bunch of additional guarantees or something when they restructured him. They essentially just took the 18.5 that they were already going to pay him. He was already owed that, and it was going to count against the cap, and they just chose which year it was going to count against. And so um, I'd prefer they not do that because that kicks $10 million into next year, and so they would pay essentially 3.4 this year. So it does give them a ton of cap space this year. The simplest way to explain it, is no matter what, Denver was going to pay $18.5 million. Instead of paying it one year, they're now, if they do the June 1 cut, they're cut it out, cut it out and spread it out over three years. That's the Flacco tax, yep. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, 
if they do it pre-June 1, then it would be all 13-6 this year. And so they would essentially have, have spread it out two years because when they restructured him, they gained, you know, 13 million worth of um, of cap space last year. And they carried some of that over this year anyway. And so I think that's the other big thing to keep in mind is people are like, oh, well, you know, now there's dead money this year. Well, if they saved money last year, they can roll that over. And so that may be why Denver's, you know, continuing to kick the money over over the next year is it gives them flexibility. If they need to use it, they can. But if they don't use it, they just roll it over. And so it's really no harm, no foul. It's just a matter of what year they pay it. And so I'm fine either way if they're okay doing that. Um, I'd prefer to just go ahead and rip the Band-Aid off and do it this year. But, I mean, you could save an additional $10 million and kick that into 2021 um, when potentially the cap goes up even more, and then you've got an extra $10 million this year to maybe, you know, sweeten Justin Simmons' deal or something like that. So either way they do it, I'm fine. Yeah, you've convinced me. I'm not too worried about that. <laughs> you knew you knew this. I, I knew that. Um, I know some folks are um, a little confused. There's been some misinformation, and so I get a little fired up about it. So don't tweet at me about Joe Flacco's contract because we'll, we'll have a going discussion. Forward... <laughs> I think going forward, if anyone tweets at me about Joe Flacco, I'm just going to refer them to this podcast now. There we and go. Just tell them listen for the Flacco tax. <laughs> so, uh, so tell me about the um, free agents that are still out there um, from Denver. One, the, there's a couple guys that are still out there, but then the ones that you know left Denver and have signed elsewhere. What have you been your thoughts on that, uh, specifically like Chris Harris, Connor McGovern, Wolf, Shelby Harris? So Connor McGovern made. Right around what the low end of what I thought he could, so it doesn't really surprise me. Uh, I have a couple of people I know that follow the Jets pretty closely. They're all pretty happy about Connor McGovern, understandably so. I think he's going to be a good signing for them. Probably one of the only good signings the Jets made so far this free agency. Uh, Chris Harris surprised me. I thought he was going to make more money. And I'm kind of – and again, I have no idea, but it sounded like he had a pretty, pretty warm market, so I'm kind of curious that – if he if he took less money to sign with a division foe, or if no one was really offering him as much as Denver did, or if it was just like the guaranteed money was better, so that's why he didn't stay with Denver, uh, or if at this point after the AJ Boye trade, if it was just kind of like the bridge was burned and Chris Harris was ready to move on no matter what. So it's it's interesting how it went down with him. I wish him the best no matter what. I love Chris Harris. I have Chris Harris's jersey. He's only one of two jerseys I have. So. I, I hope he does really well. I think he's a ring of famer when it's all said and done. If if he had gotten more hype early on, I think he would have an argument for a Hall of Fame. He's the first elite slot corner in the era of slot corners. So I think that has that says something about him. Denver doesn't win a Super Bowl without him. So again, and everyone knows this. Anybody who really watches Denver's defense over the last nine years knows how valuable Chris Harris was. But I it's a bummer that he's going to play for the Chargers, but I'm, I'm rooting for him. I can't, I can't root against him. I love him. Yeah. And I think that's a similar case. It seems like potentially with Shelby Harris and Derek Wolf is, you know, maybe the market's a little softer than they thought they were, you know, I mean, Denver kind of put out there to all their free agents, Hey, we're going to let you test the market. And it seems like a decent strategy at this point, because, you know, Derek Wolf, you could potentially still bring him back if he wants to, because you know the word is at least from what I've heard that he would like to stay in Denver, and so um, I think the KC move potentially makes that a little bit more difficult. But I mean, if Denver could bring him back on a you know smaller contract or something, I think they'd be open to it. But it, you know, it'll be interesting to see where Shelby Harris and maybe eventually Wolf go because you know Shelby Harris specifically, kind of the thought at least in Broncos country is that, you know, I'll let some other team, you know, pay a lot of money for him. He's going to go make a lot of money. We're happy for him. Let him walk and go do that. But there really hasn't been any people lining up to sign him. I mean, the Colts were pretty heavy in on him. We heard from Brandon Cristal and Benjamin Albright at the um, combine, but then the Colts went and traded for DeForest Buckner. And so, you know, kind of filled that hole there. And so I think the market for Shelby Harris softened up a lot more, um, and so he may experience something that's similar to Chris Harris, where you know he's taking less money or potentially just going after some of the guarantees or something like that and not getting the kind of big contract that he was hoping for. But, you know, wish all those guys the best. But, yeah, I think it will be interesting to see where they land. So speaking of the Colts, because of that trade, and that trade was a big deal, because Indianapolis gave up their 13th overall pick, 
it means the San Francisco 49ers have now moved up to 13. <sighs> Do you think that impacts the Broncos draft strategy? Like, the, how does that impact the, the Broncos draft? I think the big thing for me is, and, you know, I, the Colts at 13, I don't think we're going to get one of the top quarterbacks, but they, you know, obviously have a quarterback or did have a quarterback need um, with Andrew Luck retiring. And so they, you know, have essentially taken themselves out of that. There's no trade-up potential or anything. And so, you know, I'm all for as many quarterbacks to go in the top 15 as possible to push more talent down to Denver. But I think the 49ers are actually going to work against that because 49ers have two first round picks now. And so they can be a little bit more choosy and just let the draft come to them because, you know, say the receiver doesn't fall to them that they want or something like that. They could always take a guy at 31 that they don't get at 13. And so I think it allows them to just be more, uh, flexible and let talent drop to them. And so I want to be surprised if there's a guy that, you know, begins to drop maybe, or a guy that Denver really wants um, that we hope falls to us and 49ers end up taking him at 13, you know, two picks before Denver, just because they're just kind of waiting for any talent to drop. I think the 49ers needs kind of line up with what Denver's needs are in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that, that that's kind of a bummer because up until now, I've I've run I've I've run through I don't even know how many scenarios I can't tell you, but <laughs> I, I, I but I've always thought even if it's only three quarterbacks, there's a really good chance that a tackle drops, a receiver drops, or Kinlaw drops. And I love Javon Kinlaw. I love how he fits the Broncos' defense. But at this point, the 49ers' big needs are probably tackle because Joe Staley is really old. They only have really Debo Samuel. Like they were so desperate for a receiver last year that they gave Denver picks to get Emmanuel Sanders. So. And they let him go. So that really tells you they're going to probably want to grab a receiver if it's there. And because they just gave up to Forrest Buckner, there's definitely a reason for them to take Javon Kinlaw if he's there. And then the last thing is there's been rumors that teams have wanted to trade ahead of Denver to try and get rugs. At this point, the only way I can see Henry Ruggs following to Denver is if they move ahead of if, – if he somehow slides past the teams at the very top, like uh, the Raiders, uh, and – they get ahead of the 49ers because I think otherwise someone like the Eagles, if they want rugs could trade to the 49ers because San Francisco after their first, their two first round picks, they don't have a lot of picks because of the Emmanuel Sanders trade. They could definitely capitalize on someone else wanting to get up and move back and collect a haul. And I could see that happening because everybody seems to know that Denver wants Henry rugs. Yeah. And so I think, Totally agree. I think the 49ers with this pick now end up becoming kind of that wall or that ca- that net that catches anything that would potentially fall to Denver. But, I mean, hopefully you know, there will be some talent there at 15 if Denver doesn't oh, yeah. up. Somebody will be there. But, yeah, I do think be prepared on draft night for, you know, a guy that Denver's really high on to go ahead and go to the 49ers two picks before Denver. So I'm fully prepared for that. <laughs> so as we wrap up here um, – you know, we've covered a lot. We've covered, covered a lot of ground. Um, but in the meantime, while we've, you know, been watching free agency and all that, we've been collecting some listener questions and stuff as well. So once again, thank you guys so much for you know, asking questions and hitting us up on Twitter. P- please keep doing that. Um, so we want to get to some listener questions really quickly before we wrap up. So I'll throw this one to you, Joe. Um, why does the team continue to ignore the linebacker position? And why is Joe Flacco still on the roster? So Joe Flacco's on the roster mostly because of the health thing. Uh, because of the CBA, if Denver cuts him and for whatever reason he can't pass a physical, Denver would be on the hook for $1.2 million. I don't think they want to do that if at all possible. They may end up just doing it no matter what because with everything going on with like the coronavirus, stuff like that, I don't know if they're actually going to be able to clear him. Um, I know they cleared him once before, but I don't know if they have to clear him. I don't know how that works uh, exactly. But I do know that that's a concern that Nick Corti has told me a few different times. That's why they've been waiting on Joe Flacco. As far as linebacker goes, I think Vic Fangio is perfectly comfortable with Todd Davis and Alexander Johnson. I think he wants to upgrade on that spot. I also know that both Todd Davis and Alexander Johnson, their contracts run out next year. So Denver definitely is going to probably try and grab a linebacker somewhere, either in the rest of free agency or the draft. But I don't think it's such a big need. I know fans hate it, but I don't think it's such a big need that Denver is going to go out and panic grab a guy. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. But I, I think that Denver will end up coming away with somebody and Bickle groom them. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think some of the 
struggles at inside linebacker, a little bit overblown. Um, um, I like what Todd Davis did last year. I mean, I think both of the guys are a little bit athletically limited in um, coverage. And I think Alexander Johnson specifically, I think that Davis has a better feel for his own coverage, um, specifically in Fangio's scheme than Johnson did. And, you know, it's understandable Johnson only played like 12 games last year. And so I think give him a little bit of time. But, you know, some of the ways that Denver got beat over the middle, um, Johnson was out of position in some of his own coverage. But I think, you know, Denver is in a good spot with the two linebackers that they have. They have two starters. And so it is more gravy. Um, you know, obviously they want to upgrade the position if they can, but I don't think it's like a big gaping hole, not even as much as like a cornerback two or a wide receiver two, um, which leads us to Prince of Mukamura. People are asking, you know, when are we going to sign Prince of Mukamura? And he's still out there on the open market. I don't know, honestly. <laughs> and I, and well, I, well, the big thing I wonder about with Prince of Mukamura is his market. And the way the cornerback market kind of blew up may very well mean that he's sitting and hoping to get big money. And Denver may very well still want him, but they may very well also want to just see what the draft holds. So we'll see. If he ends up signing for more than $7, $8 million, I think that's probably why Denver didn't do it. If, if he just ends up sitting on the market, I bet he's kind of the fallback guy if Denver doesn't get the, the cornerback in the draft that they want. Yeah, and, and I like Prince Mukamura. We've talked about it a lot on here. I think he fits great. Obviously, he has connection with Fangio. I like him in him, in that kind of Bradley Roby-style role where he's the outside corner, but he's playing a little bit less snaps maybe at this point in his career where he comes in as the third receiver on the outside. But also, you got to look at the like cap allocation across the secondary. Um, Denver would essentially be paying top – not top dollar, but a, a good – you know. A strong contract to every member of their secondary right now they're paying AJ Boye they signed Bryce Callahan in free agency last year they signed Kareem Jackson last year um, they're paying Justin Simmons and none of that's a bad thing but at some point you've got to be able to draft some guys in the secondary you've got to be able to have some guys that are on some smaller contracts um, come after you even even though you know, to do, like you've mentioned, Joe, he doesn't count towards compensatory picks, so that's another good one because he was released um, and cut instead of walking in free agency. But, I mean, that's a lot of money tied up in the secondary. Even if they get a reasonable deal for Prince of Mukamura, you can't just dip into free agency for your entire secondary. I think at some point Denver has to draft a guy and, you know, let it play out other than, you know, Justin Simmons obviously performed well and got a better contract. But I think they've got to draft a young guy to develop. I agree, and I think this draft, I haven't covered it enough, and we, we haven't really covered it enough, but I, I actually have watched – I watched a lot of cornerbacks in this draft as much as I really could. I'm dealing with broadcast camera for a lot of them, so I, I don't feel like I know as much as I, I really should, but I have watched a lot of them. This is a really good draft for cornerbacks. It's been underrated because the receiver class is so good, but I – Denver could come out of this draft with some really, really good cornerbacks. So they're – there's an opportunity there, and Fangio knows cornerbacks, and so does that Donatel. So I, I wouldn't panic about CB2 just yet. All right, last one before we wrap things up is really around the running backs. We've gotten several questions around the running backs. Um, I'll just kind of fire them off rapid style here, and we can lump it into one answer. Um, Melvin Gordon, there's been some talk potentially that Denver could pull the trigger on Melvin Gordon. Do you think we would? Um, some folks think he would pair nicely with Lindsey. Uh, another question, are we going to draft a running back? And then are all the running backs going to be washed this year? Why pay a guy when um, Royce Freeman is serviceable? So it's really all around, you know, do you draft a running back? Do you sign one? I mean, Denver's looked like they've been interested in both of those routes, at least in terms of the feelers that they're putting out. So what are your thoughts on that, Joe? So, and, and we, we've talked about why I don't put as much value in running backs before. You and I both agree on that. We talked about it, I think, two podcasts ago. So I'm not going to go too far in that. I'm perfectly happy with Royce Freeman. I don't think he's great, but I think he's good enough for what you need. I think fixing the line is more important. Uh, Melvin Gordon, I am really cool on. I'd probably hate Melvin Gordon more than anybody else you know. Uh, I think he's a fantasy football star, and he scores a lot of touchdowns, so people think he's good. I think he's an average running back who does all the things running backs need to do average, and he just has a lot of opportunities because the Chargers had him near the goal line a lot. He gets handed the ball in the one yard a lot. <laughs> a lot, a lot. Like I can, I can, I would love to argue with people about that. And no one has that yet argued with me about it. I actually have a video out there on Twitter showing all of his touchdowns from last year. I think on two of them, he does something that's even sort of kind of good. 
Every other one is basically he's wide open running in the end zone. So I don't want Melvin Gordon. If he comes for like $3 million, maybe. I'm still not going to like it, but I guess it makes sense. But he wants more than that. He wants $10 million, I've heard, more probably. Um, as far as drafting running back goes, I've actually started to watch the running backs in this class just because I know Denver's been interested. At some point, I'll probably make a running back post. There are some guys I like. Uh, again, I don't really want to spend a day two draft a day two draft pick on one. But AJ Dillon, AJ Dillon's essentially a poor man's Derrick Henry. He's fun. He's fun to watch. Uh, J.K. Dobbins, I don't like him a lot just because I think he's going to go a lot higher than I would draft him. But he does bring basically everything you're going to want in a starting running back. If Denver does overdraft a running back, I really like Jonathan Taylor. I think Jonathan Taylor, if he can figure out how to catch the ball, he's going to be really special. Uh, he looks like – he reminds you kind of Adrian Peterson. He's not Adrian Peterson, but he gives you flashes of that. Um, the running back I like the most, and I think he's going to go probably high round two, is Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. He's a modern running back. He, he can split out as a receiver. He's a serviceable pass blocker. He's not, he doesn't have a high top end speed, but you don't need it. He's phone booth quick, and he's just really skilled. I like him a lot. Again, I don't think he'll be there where I want Denver to draft him, but if they're going to draft a running back high, one of those two makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I do think Denver's going to either draft or sign a running back, though. Yeah, you know, the only thing I would add to that is um, I like the draft route a little bit better. I'm with you on that, and we've talked about this a lot, of not spending a, a high pick on one, but – to me, the big thing is really the timeshare is you have one position and you're adding a third guy and, you know, potentially that third guy gives you something that Philip Lindsay and Royce Freeman don't. But, you know, any snap that he's in, you're taking Philip Lindsay off the field or you're taking Royce Freeman off the field. And so, I mean, to me, you don't I want to commit a lot of resources to a guy who's going to get potentially a third, maybe half of the snaps at one position that's really not that impactful anyway. And so I mean, that's kind of my thoughts on it. I agree. That That's a great way to put it. So. Well, it's we covered fun. a lot. Yeah, this yeah, is great. we did. This is uh, hopefully next week we have even more to talk about. Uh, I'm hoping that I'm kind of hoping that Elway surprises us like he did last year with Bryce Callahan and just like pulls one of those like steel kind of deals between then and now. We'll see. There's definitely still talent on the market, but uh, thanks for coming along. We uh, we'll get back to you next week. <laughs>